1: complete terms
2: it's brand new season two
4: how technology makes the current form of government obsolete. Now, I just finished reading an amazing book called The Revolt of the Public, which goes back through history, which you know I love, talking about how technology changes the way we communicate and act. And it goes to explain how all the problems, well, many of the problems that we see today, specifically the problems with the loss of trust of institutions and the way that this top-down control works, and of course, the way that the economic model is mimicking the complex system of information. I sat down with the author of the book for an awesome conversation. Martin Gurry joins me and we are going to discuss the book itself. What were the fourth and fifth wave of communication? How the parabolic increase in the rise of information is making the current forms of government obsolete. We go through recent history to look at revolutions that happened from 2011 forward, Occupy Wall Street, and so much more to break this down so you can understand exactly what's going on. It'll give you a framework to figure out where we're going and how you should be managing your life. And this is something that you should know specifically with the Restrict Act that's going into place right now is ramping up this war, this battle, because government is not compatible with what's going on. Anyway, it was an awesome conversation with Martin Gurry, with the author of this book. We do spend a little bit of time kind of setting up the book before we really dive into the revolutions. So check out the uh, timestamps down below if you want to jump ahead, Uh, but I'd, I'd encourage you to listen to the whole thing. With that, let's jump right in. All right, Martin. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited to dig in and talk to you about your book and uh, and learn so much. So, so, thanks for joining me.
5: My pleasure, Mark.
4: So, um, yeah, I just uh, read this book here this uh, the Revolt of the Public, and um, you know, I love books like this. Uh, it was a big, thick book. It Had a lot of good information. A lot of stuff that I have been seeing. A lot of stuff I have been saying. Um, but man, you really dug in deep to it. Um, I guess maybe just give us the quick thesis of the book before we start digging into what it's about uh, from your words, I guess.
5: Yeah. I mean, the origin of the book uh, goes way back when I was still um, in CIA. I was an analyst of global media. And I and a number of people with me noticed this just radical transformation of the information sphere once that... That digital tsunami of information hit. Um, and we noticed <clears throat> furthermore that behind that, there was this political turbulence. Now it seems very naive now, but we thought, we asked ourselves, what's the connection? Right. You have the internet, which is kind of like this fun communications thing and you have politics over here. Right. And now, of course, we know the, the, the mutual influence is, um, powerful, determinative. Um, but at the time, none of us knew that. So after I left government, I, I dedicated myself to the research of that and, and it became clear to me that um, essentially the the profound transformation in the structure of information was changing completely uh, the, the institutional, um, environment in which we had evolved from the, the 20th century onward institutions that are were all all shaped by the 20th century ideal of top down. Um, I talk you listen, um, there's no talking back from from the public, and that a lot of the categories in politics, such as liberal and conservative and and the right and left, which go back hundred and fifty to 200 years. Really had lost a lot of meaning, and what what I saw was that there was uh, an eruption, a, a leaping into the center stage as a political actor of the network public, people who had suddenly gained voice because of their ability to to uh, link up to to the digital platforms, and that. Almost every political conflict in the world today, some exceptions in some countries, almost everyone really maps down to the network public against the elites who run those institutions that were shaped in the 20th century, who initially had no understanding what was happening after certain events like Trump and Brexit understood what was happening but did not like it and wanted it to stop happening. So almost every conflict you have, uh and and, and uh, every eruption of change in, in around the world, around the world, um can be mapped to this this profound, profound, sort of like tectonic collision between the public and the elites. I guess
4: since the beginning of time that's how it's been. The public versus uh, the, uh, since the beginning of time, that's how it's been, right? The public versus the elites. And
5: how did, oh, not at all. Not at all. I think, I think in the olden days, the public just kind of knuckled its forehead and said, yes, sir.
4: But it was still the uh, elites trying to figure out how they could control the masses. Uh, There's a, there's a part in the Bible uh, in Exodus um, where Pharaoh looks out over all the Israelites in Egypt and said, they outnumber us. What will we do? And they said, yes. here's what we'll do. Let's work them so hard that they'll never have a chance to uprise again. So, I mean, that was written thousands and thousands of years ago. So, it's maybe always been a way that they try to kind of somehow manage uh, the people.
5: Only insert the qualification that you can be an elite in an institution that has legitimacy. And uh, whether that you should have it or not, are that's a separate conversation. But you have legitimacy. Meaning you have authority, meaning that I can tell you what to do. And you will probably do it without me having to point a gun at you, right. for example. And there are elites who need to point a gun at you or you're not going to do it. Right. And we're slowly coming to the point where if the elites don't have a whole lot of um compulsion, uh nobody's going to listen to them. Yeah. Uh, you can see that you, you saw with COVID, for example.
4: Yeah, uh, that's definitely a topic we're going to dive into. And, and, you, and you're right, you made that point very clear in your book, um, kind of breaking down the trust in these institutions. I want to come back to that. But looking back throughout history, we see that it's always some piece of technological innovation that seems to kind of change the way that we communicate and organize. Uh, so a point that I had talked a lot, a lot about and you talked about as well was about 500 years ago, we had the Protestant Reformation that really seemed to have been uh, driven by a catalyst uh, about 70 years previous, which was the printing press. And sort of this dissemination of information that then led to this, I think you would call it like this democratic access to information that changed. So sort of like that times like a thousand or times a million?
5: Oh, I don't even know. I I actually think the printing press was probably the most disruptive uh, innovation uh, in terms of information change. Um, I mean, it's still early days with the internet, right? So we may get there and, and, and surpass that one. But no, no, I think I think, uh, and and it's instructive to go back to that time because um, you know it 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 the the results were were brutal. The results, the, the consequences, the immediate consequences of the printing press were brutal. If you went to the Thirty Years' War, which was uh, kind of an offshoot of the Reformation in which for example if you know if you you went to church and and the church next door had three different words than what your your hymnal did or or your creed had um you now had those words in your book you knew them you, they there they, they were they had so the other guy who didn't have those words or who had different words they had to die the, the 30 years war was the bloodiest war in the history of Europe and if you had gone there and asked uh, those people, what do you think of the printing press, they would have said, it's the most horrible invention ever. Take it back. Destroy it. Well, today we know it was probably the most liberating, not only because of the um, Reformation, but because of the scientific revolution. You could not have had that with manuscripts. Uh, and then the French and American revolutions that brought democracy to the world. Yeah,
4: yeah, and, and uh, if, if we frame that up in context of kind of what the book is and how we want to kind of move forward, it was basically um, the, the the state, the church and state at the time were basically controlling the information, telling the people what the Bible said, but they had no access to it. But once it was democratized, once the people were able to get it and read it for themselves, they said, wait a minute, you've been lying to us this whole time. Um, and though, even though the church labeled them heretics and heresy and killed them, if they spoke out about it, it didn't matter. I mean, would that be a right way to frame yeah, that's
5: it? That's true. I think the parallel is good in many different ways, right? I mean, number one, yes, the, the, the church and, and, you know, you get inquisitions, right? And I mean, we are not at the 30 years wall level. We're not killing each other, but there are minor, not, not real inquisitions, but, but, um, I mean, you're not going to get burned at the stake, but you might lose your job. You might get, um, you know, uh, deplatformed platformed called, c- called out by digital mobs. You, uh Your reputation could be torn to, sh- to shreds overnight by saying the wrong words, right? So that's one thing. The other one is that once you start that process though of, well, I am breaking off from the church and the next thing that happens is some group inside you, th- 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 your group says, well, I'm breaking off from you. And another group says, I'm breaking off from that. And you get this kind of process of, of just, just, uh, specialization where um at the end you arrive at almost at chaos and you have to work out at what point do you do you put a boundary around that and try to make that thing work right the reformation basically exhausted itself in in uh, the 30 years war and um essentially resulted in our, our, our system of na- nation states, the nation states imposed order that that religious groups had sort of dithered away, in my opinion.
4: Mm-hmm. And if you go back before that, it was the religious groups that recreated the social order, right? So um, we kind of had this decentralized kind of uh, world and the churches kind of came into power by um, bringing order, right? They, uh, imp- they They brought order through chivalry and acts of Uh, kindness and then they also rebuilt public infrastructure which then kind of created that centralization then the printing press tore that apart and then the nation states kind of brought it back together
5: yeah yeah and there were different you know the, the nation state at a certain point particularly when it when it got to um you know the industrial state and the industrial democratic states like the united states say in the 19th century then you had to you have to somehow provide for the fact that, um, you know, just printing books or, or, or having access to a printing press, which only a few people could have was not really enough. So then, uh, mass media came into being as a way of bringing, you know, bringing into the fold the, uh, the tens of millions of citizens who had essentially entered history. They, they had become educated. They had become relatively affluent. They understood the world, but they had no access to inf- the to current information, and so you had the, the 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 mass media movement that you know I'm old enough. That was the world I was uh, born into. Yeah,
4: yeah, the mass media where you had uh, had a, a few new sources to choose from. We'll, we'll get to that now. You talked about in the book a couple of things that you talked about. In the book was one was sort of like this fourth wave and then fifth wave of information. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to go back to just kind of one thing that you said just to kind of, for everybody to kind of reiterate this since I've read the book. Um, you talked about in the book and you have a chart to illustrate this and, and maybe this was the catalyst for you writing the book that you said in 2001, all of a sudden you realized that more information was created in 2001 than all of humanity before. And then right. double that amount happened in 2002 And when you realize that, you realize that everything was going to be different. Uh, right. So that's a key piece. And I think it's super powerful. I actually just tweeted that out earlier today um, as I was preparing for this. Um, that's a massive movement. And, and, and I could only imagine it must be going uh, parabolic uh, from here, especially now with it, AI. Right. And it's all exactly, that's
5: exactly right. That, and, and you have to add to that that our institutions, and by that I mean not just government, uh, but political parties, but corporations, uh, the media, the, uh, the academia, All these essentially uh, 20th century institutions were developed with a small trickle of information in mind, most of which they they could control. And that that gigantic doubling upon doubling upon doubling of information has just battered them away. The institutions are in a state of absolute prostration because... They weren't set up for this. They were not set up for the world that we live in today. They're, they are like, um, you know, the dinosaurs or the meteor coming down. They're just maladapted. They're, they were big in the 20th century. They are looking at going extinct in the 21st. Hmm. Wow. So, what was the
4: fourth wave, and then what's the fifth wave?
5: Right. Let me go quickly through them all so that the whole thing makes sense. The first wave, well, first was the invention of writing which uh, required uh, sort of like a priestly or a each wave of information, each structure of information um, accommodates or or delivers a certain political and social uh, system. So you have the, uh, the invention of writing. You need a Mandarin or, or a priestly caste like in Egypt to do this very elaborate system of writing with thousands of symbols. The alphabet is the second wave. You could not have had the classic um uh, republics of, of say rome and athens without an alphabet um the third one we just spoke about is the um the, the printing press the most disruptive of all in my opinion the fourth was mass media i also mentioned that and then the fifth is where we are today and you're right in 2001 2001 doubled all previous information in history yeah. 2002 doubled 2001 and i'm not sure that it's 100% doubling but it has continued Parabolic is a good word. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And um, yeah, so when you look at it from that zoomed out frame and then you realize that technology changes the way that we communicate, which then changes the way that we organize. And so then the state also changes how it uh, organizes and manages us. And so uh, one of the points that you made in the book was that really um, through the um, industrial age, it kind of brought us from the farms into the cities and the factories. And then we started having this kind of mass movement of... um, really Henry Ford kind of created this assembly line. And it was a way to control the masses um, and kind of equalize the masses. And then you talked about how then we needed sort of like a governance system and a, and a information system on top of that to kind of manage that. Was that right? Can you explain that?
5: Yeah, yeah that, that, that's pretty close. I mean, you're talking about the industrial age. The industrial age was um, the, 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 the profit of the industrial age was this this guy who's sort of a bit forgotten, but was very important and is important still, um, Frederick Taylor, who believed that um, you know, he did all kinds of time and motion studies and essentially treated workers like like pieces of equipment, right? To to for for the sake of efficiency. So everything was delivered by uh the brilliant engineer at the top gave all the instructions where all the tools were going to be the workers had no say in anything they just they just basically moved they could have been robots um that is the model for the industrial age uh the, the mass movements particularly the um the totalitarian mass movements like like Marxism-Leninism like Nazism like Fascism resembled that model very much they had the, the brilliant Fuhrer at the top or, or, you know, the, the, Politburo. Um, and basically they decided everything all the way down to, um, as Gorbachev used to say, women's, women's stocking. How many women's stockings you're going to manufacture in a year, yeah. you know? Um, and, and, uh, that system can only function and we, and democracies, it wasn't quite that, that brutal, but it was a version of that. Okay. There were two, three, four TV channels. There were. Two, three, four car makers. Um, you had very limited choices. You were a mass consumer and, and industry found it very comfortable to say this mass product is exactly what you want, right? What, what the digital age has done is just sweep all of that away and lay bare the fact that no, it turns out we're very divided. We want all kinds of things, right? We want all kinds of things. The, um, the mass consumer of information, and like I said, I was born into that. It was like looking into this gigantic mirror, and we were all there. We were all the same picture. The public in the digital age, it's as if that mirror has fallen and shattered, and we all live on the different pieces. Uh, and so Uh It's a very divided, very fragmented, very conflicted world.
4: Yeah, I mean... I, I wonder uh, for me growing up in the eighties and the nineties was the same way. We all listened to the same songs. <laughs> we all listen, we yeah. all watched the same movies. Uh, you know, bands got really big and they could fill out a stadium. And now today there's um, right. you know, a million bands and they're just streaming on right. some station. Right. Um, I wonder if it's uh I mean, I guess it's just natural progression. I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg. I think you kind of made the point in the book that like um our choices were limited, so our tastes were limited. But as we've been given more choices, now our tastes have grown. Um I guess that's just a I natural think, evolution. I, I actually
5: think I actually think we have now rediscovered our actual tastes. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was okay. never the case that we wanted three kinds of car. <laughs> it was never the case that we wanted three TV. Channel. That's just what there was. And since we had no voice, the public had no voice, we just took it. I mean, their alternative was you walked if you didn't like any of them, or you turned off the TV if you didn't like any show, right? So, um, it, it was all or nothing. Uh, and most people just went along with it, but I don't think it was any, any moment where any, anybody, any large number of people within the mass audience, um, actually believed that being part of a mass audience was what they were meant to be.
4: Yeah. Yeah, you talked about, um, I think you called it RatherGate. Explain RatherGate for us.
5: Yeah, let's see if I remember that one. That that was essentially uh, a report during the, trying to remember what year it was, it was 2000 elections, was it? Um, When essentially it was very critical of George W. Bush for Basically, using his privilege to avoid going, just going to the National Guard, leaving uh, the the guard early, and all kinds of what might be construed as abuse of power. And this is a uh, a TV broadcast of which Dan Rather, who was the heir to Walter Cronkite, who was like the great figure of authority in the news world, um, and I think that's a key Dan piece. Rather- that's
4: a key piece. I mean, he was seen. As this uh, a trusted authority, right? right? Totally. Yeah.
5: Um, uh, Dan Rather stood behind this report, saying all these things about George W. Bush. And what happened was the bloggers got a hold of that report, and within literally hours, somebody had um, put it online and showed that it was in Times New Roman font. And this this was supposed to have happened way back in you know I think in the Vietnam War. Um, and there was no New Times New Roman font in the, in the, um, Vietnam era. Mm. This is a, a digital font. All right. So it, it showed that this supposedly typewritten document had actually been printed off a computer. The whole thing was a hoax. All right. Um, and rather, Dan rather sort of lost his job over that one. Yeah. Yeah. And the credibility, of course, of, of the, the anchor never regained what it was during, um, multi Cronkite's day.
4: It's amazing how fast that happens today. You know, I, I'm, yes. on, I'm on Twitter way too much these days and I'll see someone post something that that seems real, authentic, believable. And then I'll just read through the comments and just so quickly people will just start to disprove it or argue it or whatever. And uh, it's amazing how fast that crowdsourced information can change. But so you yep. can see it's very hard for an institution to put that, uh, to trying to be a trusted institution, put that out there and being constantly fact-checked by the crowd in real time. Um,
5: well, part, part of the problem, I think, is, um, the mode, the rhetorical style of the 20th century institution, authoritative institution was, we are run by experts in whatever field you have, right? Uh, we know. So the problem with the digital world is now we know that we don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And these institutions are still telling us, you know, that I sort of call it the, the Anthony Fauci syndrome, right? You know, this is really what science tells you. But wait, look, two weeks ago, you told us the exact opposite. So people get very confused and trust in that rhetorical style has evaporated. It's yeah. zero, right? And, and the, the, um, the elites that run the institutions have not learned and do not want to learn to speak in a more conditional way, they have not learned to say, "We think this is the way things are." Correct us if we're wrong, yeah. right? Which is the way most of us speak, but that that would uh, that goes against the grain of of that of of that style of, of rhetoric.
4: And the other thing is that with access to that information, so, you know, a doctor would used to have to go through all this medical school to learn this stuff, and none of us had any access to that information. So then we would just have to trust that they had read it. But today, I could spend an hour or two online and probably learn more about a specific, something very specific related to my health than my average practitioner would probably know. I might know more about it than he will, and 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 we haven't had that before.
5: Yeah, I mean, at least you think you know more. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. Well, I'm saying, you know, in some
4: topics, like an average practitioner, like they didn't, they haven't studied everything, right? right. And so, you know, for me, if I have something concerning my own health, I could spend a couple hours and probably learn more about something very specific than that average practitioner might know, for example. Essentially,
5: your doctor is going to encounter a much more educated, much more opinionated, and much more prepared you, right? So whereas before we were just like, as, as with television and as with the cars, we were the passive recipients of information. I'm your doctor, I'm telling you to do this. Now people say, well, wait a minute, I just read that. And this, by the way, cuts all across society, mm-hmm. all across society. The president, for example, used to have, as what used to call it his newspaper, was the CIA daily brief, right? Um, and CIA came and had, we have all these secrets and we, mm. we're going to tell you, Mr. President, what's going on. Are we going to tell you the future? Because part of CIA's thing is that if it, it tries to foretell events. um, And it came the moment when the president started saying, but wait, I just read something here and I just read something there. And you could just see the authority of the CIA leaking out, leaking out to, to where it probably is very low right now. Precedents can go online just like you and me and they they can question what their their um their geopolitical doctors um the CIA uh, tell them and uh, CIA has never learned to deal with this
4: mm, that's a great point you know it 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 uh it, I, it reminds me you know Basically what we have is an economic situation really, or it's an information problem and you kind of referenced the centralization of some of these, uh, previous, uh, you know, uh, whether that be the, the Russian, um, uh, the Russian or the, or what happened in Hitler's Germany, or, you know, what, uh, Mao's greatly before he tried to do. And really the, the overall problem with central planning is that they don't Gorbachev doesn't have enough information to figure out how many girls' pantyhose need to be made. It's 100%. They don't have enough information. The free market has the information. They don't have the information. And so that's why central planning of an economy can never work. And sort of what you're, I guess now I'm starting to think about is the CIA is a central planner of information for the president or the nightly news is a central planner of information for us, but they can't, they can't, they don't have enough data, enough information to control that for the public of what, what the public wants and needs at any given time.
5: They're very different modes of conveying information. And I think as much as anything, I think there's, there's a definite structural problem here. And the structural problem is the one that has to be tackled. But there's also a, a rhetorical or a style model. I mean, who do you get your information from, uh, that you trust, right? It's usually some person and you, and you trust that person because of personal characteristics. Um, what's happened with the internet is in, In my youth, uh, that was not the way it happened. It happened from authority. I am the institution, you know, and so there was, it was depersonalized. It became, you know, newspapers spoke with a completely impersonal voice. Presidents stood behind great big podiums and, you know, basically looked down and, 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 and gave us truth. Um, you, the professors did the same. Um, the internet has repersonalized information. So in other words, yeah, I think there's still people out there who provide information and and are, are very good at it. And you can be somebody like Barry Weiss or, or Matt Taibbi on Substack, for example, and the personality of the human doing the writing just shines through. And you go, this is a person I can trust, mm-hmm. you know? So I... I in part, the, the the difficulty is that the people in authority don't want to do that. I think in part because they have no personalities. These are people who are exceedingly—they're uh, they, just climbers. They're just institutional climbers. Yeah. And and um, if they were to let their insti- their their personalities to shine, um. We would, they would have nobody listen to them.
4: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, Matt Taibbi, you know, or Barry Weiss you're talking about. It's almost, um, like a meritocracy, right? The, The people who are better writers and who do more research and who, uh, present more of truth and facts get risen up. Um, and the people who are trying to hide behind some vacade of, uh, of fake authority, they quickly get found out and discredited. Sort of almost like um, the industrial revolution. So as you were saying, like the one way I've looked at it is we had this assembly line, right? And as you said earlier, like they kind of uh, put everybody down into like a number and they can kind of control everybody. And if we were on the assembly line, you know, I put my part on, you put your part on, and you may be way smarter than me, but we we basically do the same work. And, right. you know, there's obviously economic reasons and geopolitical reasons why the US uh, middle class has been hollowed out. But a big piece of it is that we went from um, the mass, you know, uh, mass assembly lines into the information age. And in the information age, if you're smarter than me, you really start to rise up faster. And now I start falling behind. And so kind of back to this meritocracy, the Matt Taibis, they can rise up while the Dan Rathers, they just start falling behind like, like CNN. They, they, they can't just live on those laurels of being trusted anymore.
5: Yeah, I, I hesitate to ever call anybody smarter or less smart and th- 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 that being a reason for success. I think what Taibi does and, and what Barry Wise does and several others that, that I follow is they put their product out there on Substack, right? And that is a very... um Talk about the marketplace. I yeah. mean, that is... There is no advertising, right? So that that you can't be kept afloat. There is no subsidy. The government doesn't give you money uh foundations don't give you money you're out there by yourself and then you either have readers or you don't now substack with a relatively small uh, number of readers 15 20,000 with by internet standards is nothing can make you a wealthy man so you are now being given by your readers uh the freedom to be an independent writer And uh, so th- if you don't if you don't attract that then um then basically you may be smart but you lost the race yeah
4: and what we have now going on uh, i don't want to go down this rabbit hole because i want to jump into the revolutions and the fall of the ussr and stuff like that but just real quickly we're at a point now with technology and where we're at at the fringe right now of really going to a model with, with substack type uh type models of what we call value for value so if i as a subscriber like matt taibbi i can pay him directly He doesn't need sponsors because the sponsors can still co-opt him and they could still kind of force his direction. But now we, the people can pay directly to the creator and get that value for value, which is then really starting to drive that even faster. Um, I wanna jump into, uh, so you you spent a lot of the book talking about these revolutions that happened mostly around 2011 and uh, kind of of around the Arab spring, I think uh, era. And you, and you drew a lot of connections that happened, you know, Tunisia and Egypt and Syria. Um, And you drew a lot of connections there, um, mainly about how really one person with an internet connection and a Facebook group or something like that could really start to mobilize the masses and kind of get this uprising. I want to dig into some of the relationships between those. And then some things that I thought about as I was listening to that, but before we do you'd kind of spent some time trying to separate the distinctions between what you call the public and the people and the masses.
5: Right. Right. Uh, so the the public, I, I didn't come up with my definition for the public. I borrowed Walter Lipman's Uh, Lipman is one of the great, uh, political writers, uh, of the 20th century. Um, and he basically, he, he was, um, he thought that the public ought to have, uh, should be synonymous as a citizen and should have tremendous uh, engagement in, in uh, democracy and so forth in, in our government. And he was very disappointed in all his researches in the, in the fact that, um, no, the public just seemed to be the people who are um, pursuing a specific affair, I think is what he called it. Uh, and use their, you know, their, their voice, their voice and their influence, uh, to support those on that side of, of of that affair, their side of their affair. So, you know, if you are, um, uh, an anti-Hosni Mubarak, um, person, young person in Egypt in the year 2011, um, your affair is to get rid of Mubarak, right? And so the people in Tahrir Square that we saw with all that, Drama where the public in Egypt that had gathered there because they had all met each other online. And there were several groups that did that. I highlighted one in my book. Uh, that continued, that continued not just 2011. It was pretty much through 2019. 2019, in fact, was probably the most, um, turbulent year for those who kind of, there were like at least 25 major, major street revolts in, uh, in, in 2019 it all kind of came to a screeching halt in 2020 yeah, for mysterious reasons. Yeah, magically.
4: There was there was magically. 10 countries with over 1 million people each in protesting previous to the 2020 silence. Yes.
5: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it it the interesting thing about it you've kind of touched on economics. This included rich countries, they included poor countries, you know, the very rich countries, very poor countries. They included um very healthy democracies and pretty terrible dictatorships. So the revolt of the public is, doesn't seem to be completely or even maybe primarily about economics or about democracy. There seems to be something else that people are after. Hmm. And what is that? Well, that's a good question. If you had, if, if you had the answer to that, um, you know, you could probably make a lot of money. Um, well, I think but, I, I have the answer. Okay,
4: <laughs> maybe I can make a, maybe I can make a lot of money with it.
5: Well, I think yeah, I think I think ultimately people
4: want to be able to pursue their own life, right? Uh, li- uh, pursue their own life, and the problem is is that my definition of uh, utopia isn't the same as your definition of utopia, and so I need to be free to pursue my direction, my life, my version of utopia, and you should be free to um, pursue yours as well. The problem is when we have these authoritarian figures who want to In the United States, 330 million people have to live under one single regime. And that's just way too many people. We can't live under that regime. And so I think you hinted in your book about, you know, uh, smaller regions, right?
5: Yeah. Yeah. I think the tendency of the 20th century, which is still the tendency of our institutions because they live mentally in the 20th century, is to centralize and standardize everything, Mm -hmm. right? As you say, I think we have reached the point in that experiment where we can say it's failed. We can't do that. Um, not, not at this level. We, not at Yeah. Right. If you're even Switzerland, I mean, Switzerland's like 10 million, 12 million people and they live on their valleys. They don't live in Switzerland is a, is a the, the, the federal government of Switzerland. My goodness. It, it's, it has almost no power. Um, so it's, a, yes, the U.S. is on a different scale, but most any scale, um, Quickly ratchets it up to the point where you cannot centralize it to that degree.
4: I have another theory too. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to that though, uh, <laughs> because um, I want to go back to these revolutions. So you kind of talked about um, these different revolutions that happened around 2011, and to your point, yes, they're continuing, etc. And and you talked about. I want to kind of go back to that though. The the public uh, was, is all the people, but they identify with different causes that don't always interrelate. So I care about what's going on with surfer, with, with surfing and motorcycle riding and health food. Um, but not always at the same time. And other people that are interested in health food don't necessarily care about the motorcycle riding or surfing, right? So we're, we we all have these different interests that don't necessarily overlap. That's the public or is that the people?
5: There is the, the people is it doesn't exist. Okay. So it's just the right? public.
4: And then what's the masses? Yeah. The public are yeah. the people the, are part of the masses that then, um,
5: the public, the public is not the people. Although every protest you will ever see, it claims to represent the people. But the people, the people essentially is a category of political philosophy that, that, that there's no such thing as the people. The masses was just an, a 20th century sociological term. Uh, it was useful then. It's not so useful anymore. It doesn't really get used. So, so maybe much.
4: the masses and the people are kind of the same. It's just, just, just a, a, a group of people that don't really identify themselves, whereas the public are a group from within the public or the or people or the masses that step up to identify themselves with a movement?
5: The public is born from friction, okay? Um, if, if the elites are legitimate and the public is content and the people – Within a, uh, who are not elites, the non-elites are content. There will be no public. At some point, something done by the elites or some circumstance of life rubs enough people the wrong way that they break off from the elites and say, "I don't like the way things are headed." And that's that's how the public is born. Okay. In the old days, they would have had um, you know radical parties that organize them or whatever. Today, they go online and they organize that way. Hmm. So we have these revolutions
4: that were happening uh, and not just over in, in the Middle East, uh, obviously we most of it in the Middle East that you talked about, but then you even talked about Occupy Wall Street happening in the United States and it wasn't near as big of a movement. But one thing that you had drawn uh, some some ties between these groups was that they weren't uh, like a poor class. They were typically kind of more of a middle class, uh, educated class of people. Um, that 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 yeah. seemed to kind of how it how how they were. You also kind of drew some uh, conclusions that maybe they weren't organized or agitated or placed there by the left. You talked about the left versus the right, um, and you said that maybe the left wasn't the ones that had put them up to. They seemed to have kind of moved more organically, something like that.
5: Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the reactions of the opposite side. But first of all, these groups are not left. or right. They have lefties flavor. And for example, the indignados in Spain were sort of like leftish. Um, and when they finally, after years, organized a, a minor party called Podemos, it was definitely a left party. Um, and um, some, like, for example, the, the yellow vests in, in, in France have kind of like a rightish flavor. Okay. But the politicians from those sides have tried, tried to draw them in on their side and they rejected them. They're really anti establishment, anti status quo. They want radical change. The problem is they have no leaders. They have no um, organizational structures. They have no programs. But that's the whole, they have that's no the ideology. whole point. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, well, so they are against, but they are not necessarily, they can't articulate what they are for. Yeah.
4: They're for, they're, it's not what they're for, it's what they're against. Yeah. Um, how, how would you define the left versus the right in that context?
5: That's a really good question. I would just almost genealogically, right? People who claim to be that and descend from from leftists, for example, um, uh, both the indignados and, um, and the occupiers had a very strong um, anarchistic element, right? So the anarchists are real good Organizing these street protests and if and their system, see all these are are model after like online discussion groups and the anarchistic model of discussion fits that very well. The model where everybody's allowed to talk and there's no votes, no decision-making process or anything like that. So that you know, basically those those uh movements had a slightly leftish flavor because they were slightly leftish, you know, the genealogically leftish people in them but the vast majority you could put i mean not not um not occupy wall street that was a slightly different group because they never generated large numbers but the indignation could put a million people on the street and there aren't that many anarchists in all of spain right so uh, and they got uh, opinion polls showed large large majorities approving of them even though they stood for nothing everybody wanted against let me just run this
0: by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket
7: Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession.
2: But
6: the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake.
4: As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often.
7: Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or
4: wherever you get your podcasts. Would you say that left tends to want to have more government control and right wants to have less government control?
5: I mean, that's true here, I guess, generically. Um, I, um, see, what is, what is, uh, what's Emmanuel Macron in France, for example? Emmanuel Macron was sort of born in the Socialist Party, but he was a, he was with the Rothschild Bank, okay? Mm -hmm. That's not your idea what a socialist should be doing. And, um, then he broke away from the socialist, created his own party. What was that party? Was it left? Was it right? Well, he is turned out to be a very undemocratic president. He basically just rammed this this uh, law uh, without getting a vote of, of the National Assembly in France. But is he right? Is he left? He definitely wants more government power. I I don't know. Yeah. I do not know.
4: Yeah, that's the problem. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, you know, they say fascism is right and socialism is left, but to me, they're both authoritarian governments. So. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to draw a line. I um. I recently wrote a book. Shameless plug. Uh, oh, wow. I wrote it last last August. Nowhere near like your book. Uh, it's titled the Uncommunist Manifesto.
5: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of it. Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: So. Uh, the Uncommon Manifesto, and in it, I have a diagram. It's 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 too small to show you, but I drew a diagram here in the book. And basically, what this did is I, I, what we framed as the real spectrum. And over on the over on the uh, right hand side, we show uh, politics, and we have you know communism being on the left and fascism being on the right. But all of it is on the politics side. And then over here, all the way over here, is where we have individualism. So. Uh, fascism is right. Socialism is left. Uh, whatever, right? They're both authoritarian governments trying to tell us what to do and tell us how many pantyhose we can have. Uh, I, I don't know what the differences of the flavors are. Um, but anyway, um, so going back to this. So the one thing that I was thinking as I was listening to you frame up all of these is um, you had talked about how um, really this top down central planning fell. It really collapsed with the fall of the USSR. Yes. Um, so you kind of made that case. Now, You know, in in my book, The Incomunist Manifesto, we talk about how Marxism, communism really never kind of went away. It's it's still kind of here, kind of almost went underground. And so what I was kind of hearing is you're talking about all these different movements that were going on. It was all very anti-capitalist, very anti-capitalist and pro-welfare. That's what it seemed to be. What uh, people wanted. uh, They Well, okay, actually, so it seemed like the main problem that they were all facing. And when I've studied, the, um, studied, studied some of these, it seems like when people can't eat, that's when they go revolt. And so they were all sparked by the rise of increase, increase of living standards. My, that girl that you talked about, I forget where, you know, she blogged about she couldn't afford her apartment anymore.
5: In Israel. In
4: Israel, right. In Israel, she couldn't afford her apartment anymore. So really, it was the rise of prices. You talked about all in Spain and Catalonia, what happened. It was the increase in living costs um, drove people past the point, past the brink. And then they seemed to demand the government fix that that by taking away capitalism, which they think had caused that divide, and to give more welfare to help uh, bridge that gap. Do you think that's a fair assumption?
5: I think in some cases, yeah. I think, I think that what, what the term was that, that young woman whose name escapes me right now, um, uh, used was swinish capitalism, which, uh, of course, if you're uh, an Israel, Israeli, you know, anything associated with pork isn't a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, and the Wall Street occupiers were very anti-capitalistic. I think they're all anti system they're all anti system but but they wanted and more welfare right they 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 you can't even say that because there was there was no they in terms of any programmatic demands they had they had never programmatic demands they want the government to make life meaningful they want the government to make life interesting. they all had certain um uh more or less reasonable and reasonable economic demands but they also had social demands. We in the U.S. go for you know, racial demands and you know, gender demands. So it, it, it is a sense in each one of these groups that the world is out of order. You know, it, it, it's out of kilter. And, and that the people in charge, the elites, are responsible for that. And then they turn to the same elites, and you're right about that, and say, fix it. They had just ac- accused them of destroying... Basically, the meaning of life, or whatever, and they have turned to the same people who have done that, and they say, "Fix it."
4: Do you think? But do you think the main catalyst was that? That back to kind of what I said: this cost of living, this uh, quality of life, was going down. So, to to the girl in Israel, right? She couldn't afford her apartment anymore. They couldn't afford food. No,
5: she was. I I, I don't think, I agree with that at all. I think she came from a wealthy Ashkenazi family. But, but she had she turned was her back. Film-
4: but she had turned her back on that, right?
5: She, no, no, she had not. And the Israeli families are powerful. The, uh, the, she was basically, I mean, everybody in life sometimes has to, you know, adjust to economic realities. She did not want to do that. She wanted the government to, to give her a, an apartment where she did not have to commute. Um, and basically this enormous protest, the largest ever in the history of Israel, till these recent ones that we're having right now, um, uh, arose from this one young woman not being able to afford her apartment. So um, but, that, but, that, but, that's, but, that's, but
4: that's my point. She it came from the cost of living or the quality of life. She couldn't afford her apartment. She wanted the government to give her a better apartment.
5: Right. I mean, she wanted the government to do something such that right. there would be you know she could stay in, in a place where where she was close to her work. Yeah, but I mean. In it, the motivation varied in Spain. Of course, there had been a tremendous uh, decline in the, in the standard of living after two thousand and eight. But in the US, but, the but, occupiers well, were just anti. Well, no, it um, happened
4: after the two thousand and eight Great Financial Crash.
5: Well, no, it was it was twenty eleven, so it was like three years later. All right, so and, and it was, and, and, it was a, and, and, that would be called
4: Arab Spring yeah. was because massive inflation happened and they couldn't afford bread anymore.
5: I mean that's that-, that, that they were way more affluent in Egypt than they had been ever in their history so that's not true either. Um I it, it, and it, you know a country like Chile which has probably the most drastic of the revolts because the, the the basically the the street protesters ended up running the presidency and writing the constitution. Chile was a massively prosperous prosperous the most prosperous Latin American country. Un, un Unbroken prosperity.
4: Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm just trying – Anyway, and so then it seemed like, uh, like I said, it seemed like uh, they all were demanding the government give them this. So it's like on one hand they – they wanted to dismantle the government, to your point. But on the other hand, they wanted the government to fix it. And so it seemed like there was a socialist ties. And so I was just curious if that's – it seems like a lot of Marxism to me, right? Karl Marx himself talked about how he was so mad because he wanted to write philosophy, but the market didn't, didn't value that and he couldn't make any money. So he wanted to take from the rich so he could, you know, each according to his ability, each according to their need, he could just write his philosophy and get paid. And so it seems a lot of this kind of Marxist, socialist kind of – Thinking that has um, spurred a lot of this. Um,
5: well, he got he, he got angles to to um, basically write his meal tickets, right? Yeah,
4: exactly, exactly. So on one hand, it's like seemed like the USSR collapsed, but then maybe the 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 ideas, the ideologies of Marxism, still kind of um, seem to do that. Uh, seem to kind of still stoke that. And ultimately, um, it seems like you know, I guess we could say categorically, when people aren't happy with their own lives, and typically when people can't. Afford to live the quality of life they want, and, and ultimately can't afford to feed their families. That's when they really get crazy. Um, so, kind of goes back to this economic model. Um, I'm curious. Um, so, you wrote you wrote a lot about you know what was going on in those days. Um, obviously, in our phone, uh, our conversation right now. Now, you wrote the book in 2016. Is that right?
5: The the, the first um, edition was uh, 2014. Hmm. Uh, the second edition, which has a pretty large update. Was um, not like December of 2018.
4: Okay, because um, trust <laughs> has seeming to be an eroding even faster at a faster pace than we might have even imagined. And so I'm yes. curious, kind of, what your take is. I mean, shoot, in the just in the last two years, you already kind of mentioned the COVID complex and Fauci, what we've seen happening with the Canadian truckers, you know, yes. all of this. Um, And now today, um, you know, the Davos group met um, in February. The number one topic of Davos is how do we handle misinformation and disinformation, malinformation in the United States. It's a threat to our democracy, misinformation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we every day find out more lies the government's telling to us. Um, and so it's like, they are telling us they have to combat misinformation, but every day we find out they're the purveyors of misinformation. So I'm curious how this is sort of escalated in your thinking since you've updated the book.
5: Well, I mean, that, that aspect of it, I find really fascinating because what I love is dealing with information and how it intersects with politics and power. Right. So, um, they're actually working on a, on an article, um, on, on that subject. Um, it essentially... The elites want to return to the 20th century. They're reactionary. <laughs> you know, 20th century was a really good time to be. Put the, bean,
4: put the you, genie back in the bottle.
5: <laughs> yeah, you could be John F. Kennedy, and you know, have all these run-ins with women, and they protected you. You were protected. Uh, today, of course, everybody is out there. You know, the emperor is naked, and, and nobody likes that. So, um, so. They have tried in the most interesting way and not, not good, uh, to control the source of all this, which is the digital domain. And really and truly over the last, uh, you know, since 2016, since, since Trump got elected, there has been this coalescing of government agencies, NGOs, you know, non-governmental organizations, the media, the traditional media, all kind of huddled together. Uh, to influence and I think in the end, censor. That's not a word I use. Um, lightly, I, I only use it in terms of when the government is involved, right? Uh, censor social media from using, uh, you know, basically broadcasting opinions that, that they disapprove of. And I mean, that's happening right now. And of course, like the Twitter files, which, you know, was born when, uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter and then turned uh Basically, a lot of internal documents to Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, and Barry Weiss, and they looked at what was going on, and they saw that the FBI was essentially the, the, the Biden White House was telling Twitter get that guy, get, expel that that account, expel that American citizen from speaking on on um, on Twitter, and Twitter saluted and said yes.
4: Yeah, yeah, and it's happening more and more and more, and now they're uh, you know. They're, try, they're trying everything they can. You talked about this conundrum that I thought was pretty interesting where you said, um, you know, governments would like to restrict speech and communication, but the problem is they'll stifle growth. So right. they want to have the communication and allow speech, but then they risk their power.
5: <laughs>
4: right. Now, if they stifle growth, they're going to risk their power too. So it's like they're kind of caught in this conundrum where, like, really there's no win there. I mean, if they stifle growth, they're going to get overthrown, and if they don't stifle growth, they're going to get overthrown. You had said early in the book that um, you—I think you made the statement. Uh, correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but um, that the current form of government today isn't compatible with this uh, kind of te- technology that we have.
5: Right. It, it's not just technology; it's it's a structure of information. Right. Um, so I, we are we are set up for a world of with very thin streams of information that feed into each institution, like the media, for example, mm-hmm. and, and, and it becomes a sort of a semi-monopoly that then, because there's so little, this information is so scarce, when Walter Cronkite did go on television and say, that's the way it was for, you know, whatever date, um, we had no way of knowing anything. So if he gave us some information, we were happy he had authority, right? right. Um, today... That, that, that whole system has been, has been battered down. And, um, essentially, I, I mean, it, it, the battle has been joined. So I, I don't make predictions, but I find it hard to believe that you could put the internet genie back in the bottle. It's too big. The internet is essentially for any individual purpose, infinite, right? And government, is not very capable. So, I mean, even governments that specialize in repression aren't very good at it. Um, so our government, thank goodness, has not specialized in that yet. Uh, it's terrible at it. So the idea that it, it can somehow, um, deal with, with the information world from a 20th century perspective, it cannot. So, I mean, there are many ways in which we can change these government structures can change and uh, i will you know i'll tell I'll give you one i mean one the, the trust in our government organizations is, is collapsed all right now m- a lot of corporations the trust has collapsed if you look at one corporation in which it hasn't collapsed is amazon Amazon for all its you know uh problems or questions what are gonna have gets from customers a gigantic amount of trust. It makes sense. I mean, Who of us did not use Amazon during the pandemic? And what do you do when you do that? You put your credit card online. That's a massive act of trust. And you expect something to show up on your doorstep a day later. That's another massive act of trust. And you expect the thing to be of high quality, a third massive act of trust. Now, Amazon is a gigantic bureaucracy, but that's not what you experience. You experience quick, service with good, um, products. The federal government is the most gigantic deliverer of services probably in the world. But that's not what you experience. What you experience is bureaucracy, condescension, arrogance, you know, this, this form, that form. Who are you? Come back tomorrow. It's going to take years. It's going to take. So, so, um, if you want to change the federal government in, in the set in the services side, make it more like Amazon and a lot less like the Great Pyramid of Giza.
4: While I am certainly in agreement, and I and I sometimes hang some uh, some of my (laughs) get some of my solace in the uh, sheer incompetence of the government. Um, To your point, they've uh, look what happened when they tried to launch the Obamacare website, or uh, they tried to overhaul the IRS (laughs) website, uh, or whatever. But um, you know, it seems like um, the more control they lose, the more they're going to have to try to squeeze. you know, I don't know if you're following along with the latest technology. I'm a I'm a big uh, Bitcoin advocate. And we have uh, these decentralized networks now that are outside yeah. of the hands of the government. And so, you know, uh, not, a, not a brand new one, but like Napster. I think you maybe referenced it in your book. But then we had uh, yeah. like BitTorrent. And we could download mo- music and movies on the web and there's just nothing they can just do about it. And so we have these decentralized networks now. Now we have Bitcoin. Um, and that's outside the hands of the government. They can't stop that. And now there's another one. It's called a Noster. And it's a decentralized communication platform where you can be, build decentralized Telegram or, or Twitter or YouTube clients on it. And this is just, it's outside of their control. So in the past, to your point where you know Twitter files exposed that they were telling Twitter what to do, these are now new networks that, that can't, they can't impose their will on. Uh, i don't know if you've if you've seen the rise of that or if you have any prediction of how that changes things
5: yeah no i mean i i won't make predictions cuz i don't but um i that's part of what i'm talking about uh, the 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 digital realm is is too big and too elusive it is it's like water you can't grab it you know um I don't know whether those those particular um, technologies and, and, and modes of, of communication will be the ones that permanently escape government control. They may just be at the moment in time. We are at the very, very early stages of this cosmic transformation from the industrial age to something that doesn't even have a name yet, right? And this, these may just be moments in that. Or it may be that, yes, indeed, you know, um, crypto and, and, and Bitcoin and so forth, uh, turn out to be a decisive change. I mean, if you have, if you have a, a way of, of essentially printing currency that the government has no control over, you have radically changed the foundations of the nation state.
4: Well, one thing I would say, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but just like, um, to, to the point of your book, you talk about how what we considered information pre-internet era was, you know, Cronkite uh, or rather either one, you know, giving us the nightly news and three newspapers that were written by the same person. That was information. Um, whereas today, what we consider information is completely changed. And so a kid, you know, in, in Asia posts a picture on the beach and I have this information about the weather, the waves, all this information. Uh, Bitcoin is a way that we can transfer value. Um, what we would consider money would be like our, we store our value on that. We can communicate value. Uh, But I think the definition of that has been expanded, and um, so that'll be interesting to watch. But um, what's interesting is, uh, so I I recorded a video earlier today for my um, YouTube channel um, talking about this new bill that has been put forth uh, bipartisan, Democrats and Republicans are going for this, uh, the Restrict Act. Have you heard about this Restrict Act? No. So basically it's called the Restrict Act, and um, it's basically to make TikTok illegal. Oh. So they want to make TikTok illegal, but if you dig into what the act is, just like all of these, you know, Save the Puppy Act, it's not what they appear on <laughs> on the outside. This is the um, this is the Patriot Act times a thousand, mm. times a million, and basically, I'll just read you a couple things from this. Um, inside this restrict act, it allows the Director of National Intelligence and Secretary of Commerce. So two people we didn't vote in uh, the authority to universally designate new foreign adversaries without notifying Congress, without a 15 day window to notify the president, and it would require a joint resolution of Congress to overturn it.
5: I had not heard. Now, this.
4: you might know from the Patriot Act that foreign individuals can now also be U.S. citizens that are deemed a national security threat. Once designated, the bill grants authority to enforce any action deemed necessary to mitigate the threat with no due process and few limits on punishment. The Restrict Act will allow the government to access all of the data on your video devices if it has more than 1 million people using it, iPhones, ring cameras, etc. So now they can access all of that information. What kind of punishments? A million dollar fine. 20 years in prison and the forfeiture of everything you own you use a VPN to get around this boom you go to jail 20 years you lose everything this act also grants unlimited hiring to position uh, to to power to positions of enforcement, unlimited funds and little to no review of immunity with no FOIA requests
5: <laughs> Well that's why I like these conversations you have taught me something I had not heard of that.
4: I mean, this is bad. This is like really bad. So this is, uh if you can't beat them, might as well just cut the internet lines like they tried in Egypt. I mean, that's kind of what this is saying because it seems like they see these uh decentralized protocols that are popping up and they know they can't control them. So then uh, we just have unlimited access to everything. And if we catch you even looking like you're gonna use it with a VPN, we're gonna put you in prison for 20 years with no due process.
5: Yeah, I can't imagine that's gonna pass.
4: It's got uh, bipartisan uh, support uh, by, by big names, including, uh, I mean, I'll read, you, I'll read you a couple here. Um, it's, it's got a lot of firepower behind it. It's got uh, Mark Warner, Democrat Virginia, Senator Warner, it's got uh, a couple of big ones here. Tommy Baldwin, Wisconsin, De- 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 oh, Joe Manchin. D- Democrat west virginia M- mansions on it jerry Ma- uh, Morin a representative from Kansas. uh a couple other big ones here Kristen Gilbrand from New york uh mitt Romney, republican from utah i mean it's got it's got it's got twenty or so people on here both sides of the aisle
5: this is this is, this is the elites yeah of course i mean this is the, the, i mean all, every one of those names i would say you can you can reproduce their behavior almost endlessly as elites.
4: For sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's back to that conundrum. Uh, you know, if we don't allow this technology, we're going to put ourselves in, uh, back into, you know, we're going to restrict our growth. If we do, we're going to constantly be overthrown here. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a massive ratchet up in this, uh, in this communication game to say the least.
5: I'll look it up.
4: Yeah. Um, all right, well, um, (laughs) you don't make predictions and you've already said that in, in, in the final part of your book, you kind of, uh, give your thesis of where this, where you think this kind of goes though. Um, do you want to summarize kind of where you think that goes or kind of how you summarize the thesis in the end? I'm
5: not sure what you mean by that. Um, what
4: was it called? Uh, the, the finale for skeptics and you had, uh.
5: Yeah. Well, basically what I say is actually that was my sort of like, you know, if, if you do an experiment, you need to have, well, if, if X happens, then, right. you know, this, it means this, but if Y happens, this means the, that. The
4: null hypothesis, you called it, right?
5: Yeah. The null hypothesis, yeah. right? Um, and, and, you know, I have to say, I, as you put it, I think earlier, um the one thing i got wrong was the speed at which this was coming at us right mm-hmm. i definitely didn't realize how fast it was moving but i think in terms of the substance of it when you look at it, I, I said if if my hypothesis is correct these are the things that need to be happening if not then this is the opposite here's a null we do, our world today looks nothing like the null hypothesis it looks like the revolt of the public in steroids got it
4: got it well, it's, it's certainly interesting. What a time to be alive, right? Um, I often say well, that I mean,
5: if, if you're, a, if you're a geopolitical analyst, it is kind of fun, but I mean, what a mess. I also fear, feel kind of like Dr. Death because my book and my people wanting to talk to me ratchet up every time something horrible happens somewhere. <laughs> you know? Everybody feels like I, I can explain it. And of course I, I mostly can't, but happy to try. Yeah.
4: Well, um, uh, I definitely recommend getting the book. I enjoyed reading it. Um, it, have you read the book The Sovereign Individual? Yes. Yeah, a really good book. Um, it's good, very good. Yes. Fits together, fits together well yes. with this, you know. Yeah. So recommend to anyone listening. Check out The Sovereign Individual. Check out this book. Uh, if you want an idea, I, I think I think it helps. It helps show what's going on in the world today, so it kind of brings some clarity to what's going on, and it helps you develop some frameworks to think about where where we're going into the future and how you can navigate that. Um, well, thank you. the problem I have with, with this act, this, this act, uh, this restrict act is like, this is anybody in the world, like this is the long arm of the government, right? It it's, it's against foreign individuals, which can also be us citizens, but like, you can't just move to another country and get away from this. Um, so it's going to be interesting anyway, uh, man, it has been awesome reading the book. It's been awesome talking to you about it. Um, anything that you'd like to point attention to that people should go check out?
5: Um, no, I mean, I, like I said, the whole disinformation, um, you know, what Michael Schellenberger calls it a, uh, 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 information, uh, the censorship industrial complex, he calls it, uh, censorship industrial complex, which is really not industrial. It's more like a protection racket, I would say. Um, I, I think anybody who, who values freedom ought to be watching that. I mean, it really is. It happened, it happened without, debate, it happened without uh, laws being enacted, it happens without warrants, it happens without judges being involved, it happened without formal investigations. Suddenly, we have this apparatus of control that um, the government has implemented. Um, And I think we as citizens need to push back on that.
4: Definitely. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and sign it off. We're going to link to everything down in the show notes down below so you can check out the book, um, check out his blog. And with that, we'll sign it off. Thanks so much, Martin. All right, that's a wrap. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation I had with Martin Gurry. It was, uh, it was a good conversation. It was an even better book. I highly advise checking it out. We'll put a link down to the description in the show notes below. As I said, there's new technologies that are going to make the state uh, incompetent at trying to enforce this. Bitcoin decentralized monetary networks, Noster decentralized information protocols. If you want to check it out, um, you should come check out the Bitcoin conference in Miami coming up soon. I'll be a speaker there. I have a link for discount tickets. If you'd want to come, I can get you a discount on some tickets. And if you send me um, send me a message showing that you bought it with my link, I'll put it down below. I'm going to organize a little meetup with some uh, some people. So if you want to come check out the Bitcoin conference, get a discount on tickets. There's a link in the description. Otherwise, leave me a comment. Let me know what you think about this conversation. Let me know what you think about what the future of government looks like with this new technology that allows us to communicate without censorship. I'd love to hear what you think. As always, hit that like button if you like it, the dislike if you don't. Um, Subscribe if you're not already subscribed and that's what I got to your success. I'm out.
2: It's brand new season two.